Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. My name's Nate, and I am a child of God. I'm a grandson, a son, a husband, a father, a friend, and the worship pastor of one of the best group of people in the best church in the world. It's just my opinion, but it's true. I am a representer, a keeper, a winner, an influencer, and a follower. I have a positive ID. But even knowing that I have a positive ID, I want to ask this question. What do people think of when they hear the word Christian? We hear about it a lot, all the time. They think that when they hear the word Christian, they think deceived or naive or maybe even downright stupid. Or maybe living transformed by the love of Jesus. Maybe people think people who use religion as a crutch. Hopefully they think of loving, giving, kind, sometimes judgmental, harsh. When they hear the word Christian, maybe they think of loving, compassionate, faithful, words like integrity, or maybe they think, ah, they're those people that are just against everything, especially the fun things. So let me reframe the question. What did you think of Christians before you found Jesus? And maybe, far more profoundly, what do you think of Christians now that you're a part of the body? Nobody answer, I don't wanna raise any hands, I just want you to think about that. The reality is that Jesus calls those who believe in him to be followers. And to be a follower means this. It's Jesus saying to us, I want you to live like me, I want you to love like I love, speak like I speak, do what I do, follow me. You know, and it's interesting, Jesus never called anyone to be a Christian. In fact, he never used the phrase, not once. In fact, in the early days of Christianity, the church was actually more commonly referred to as followers of the way, or believe it or not, Nazarenes. So we kind of got the OG name going on, you know. In the Greek, the word Christianos means follower of Christ. Seems real simple. And yet, that's just the surface meaning. The first part comes from the word Christos, which means Christ, meaning anointed one. With an adjective ending that's borrowed from the Latin to denote adhering to or even belonging to, as in slave ownership. To be a Christian in the most basic terms means to be a slave to Christ. In essence, we belong to him. By our choosing, understanding what he's asking and saying, yes, I want to belong to you. If you are a Christian, it means that you are called to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus. 
If you are in Christ, you are loved, you are forgiven, and you are living transformed. The old is completely gone, and all things are made new, and you are filled with the Spirit of God, and your life should look like it. Your life is not your own. You belong to somebody else. You've been bought with a price. So the question we come to, sorry, I could hear that in the background. The question we come to is this. What does it practically look like to be a follower? In that belonging, in that giving of ourselves over to him, what does that look like? And I'm gonna say three things about that. The first one is, a follower will see what he sees. The second is, a follower will hear what he hears. And finally, a follower will do what he says. And I'm gonna spend the most time on that third one today, so buckle up. As a follower of Jesus... He will open your eyes to the needs of those around you. And this isn't just a blanket, oh, there are needy people out there, or oh, I feel this way, or you know, you see a commercial on TV, you know, with the, the children in Africa that need you to sponsor them, and you just you feel a little something and then you just move on with your day. No. You will see every single person as a unique, valuable, loved individual instead of just a face in a crowd or a statistic. We see this perfectly illustrated in John 5, 1 through 9. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. And now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by covered colonnades. And here, a number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, and they waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters, and the first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. That means a lot to me because that's how old I am. So I like to put myself in this position a little bit. And this is the key part. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me get into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes ahead of me. And then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And at once, this man was cured, and he picked up his mat and walked. One of the things I think is so interesting about this story is that Jesus noticed this man. And there was a lot around to notice. He was not the only one there that needed help. He was not the only one there that needed healing. I mean, if this was a regular occurrence and people knew this, I mean, I can imagine it would have been thousands of people that would have surrounded that place. And yet, even in the midst of so 
much need around him, he still somehow noticed the one. And I don't know, maybe he'd been there the longest. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly why Jesus singled him out, and I like that. He noticed the man. And he spent real time understanding his situation. The only way he would have learned how long he had been there, the guy had nobody with him, so he wasn't asking anybody else. He was spending time with this man, finding out what his actual need was. He reached down to him, he reached out to him, he interacted with him, he valued him in a way that that society did not. And ultimately, healed his body. Second, a follower will hear what he hears. And we'll go right into the story here. Matthew 10, 46 through 52. Then they reached Jericho, and as Jesus and his disciples left town, a large crowd followed him. A blind beggar named Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting beside the road. When Bartimaeus heard that Jesus of Nazareth was nearby, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the people around him said, shut up. <laughs> Be quiet, many of the people yelled at him. But he only shouted louder, son of David, have mercy on me. And when Jesus heard him, he stopped. And said, tell him to come here. <laughs> I love this line. So they called the blind man. Cheer up, they said. Come on, he's calling you. If it had been today, they would have been all grabbing their phones out to record whatever was about to happen because they wanted to be a part of this moment. They're getting all excited. because, like, oh, Jesus is gonna do a thing. They don't care about this guy. They were telling him to shut up 30 seconds ago. Human nature has not changed that much. We just have technology that makes us look dumber when we do it. <laughs> they called to the man, cheer up. I can just picture him dusting him off. Sorry about spitting on you. Sorry about throwing that thing at you. Here, come here, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus wants to talk to you, so now you're important. He threw aside his coat, jumped up, and came to Jesus. Now, little side note, this isn't even in my notes. But in that era, if you were a beggar, you had specific clothing you had to wear that denoted you as okay to beg. Kept people from fraud. Again, things have not changed. I love that the first thing he did was cast off that coat because he knew what was about to happen. Bartimaeus threw aside his coat, jumped up, and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. He didn't assume because he didn't say, son of David, come heal my blindness. He just said, have mercy on me. So he asked him, what do you want? My rabbi, the blind man said, I want to see. And Jesus said to him, go, for your faith has healed you. Instantly the man could see. And he followed Jesus 
down the road. He heard this man's cry for help. And he actually heard what he was asking for, for mercy. And I know that he didn't just receive physical healing that day because how does the chapter end right there? How does the, the section end? He followed Jesus. Jesus was actively listening for those in a crowd of people who might call out to him. He expected to be interrupted because he understood that's why he was there. And there's many stories that we could talk about in the Bible where Jesus was interrupted while he was on the way to do something else, whether that was on his way to heal Lazarus or there are just many. Over and over you can find those stories. Jesus was listening for those who were crying out for him, even in the middle of a crowd, hostile crowd in this sense. If we're following Jesus, we will hear what he hears. We may hear somebody lash out at us in anger, but we'll hear brokenness. We hear what he hears. There's a story of uh, Pastor Jim Cimbala who, if you've never had a chance to go to Brooklyn Tabernacle, please go. It's worth going to New York for, even if nothing else is anymore. I don't know what the city's like at this stage. Go to their Tuesday night prayer service. It will mess you up. I just, I just stand there and cry every time I go. It's an amazing place of transformation that God has consistently used for decades now. In the middle of one of the most broken cities in the world. But there's a specific story about Pastor Jim Simbola, and it was an Easter Sunday story. There was a man whose name was David Ruffin. Um, he was an addict, he was an alcoholic, he was homeless. And his only connection to the church at this point was that it was one of the places where he would find a stoop to sleep on when he needed rest. And he would just go down and lay down in his own filth and his own urine, whatever it was, and just go to sleep. Well, it just so happened that one of these days when he was going after finishing all of his rounds of collecting cans and doing all the things that he did, he was laying in that spot and it just happened to be Easter Sunday morning. And he could hear the worship and the sound coming from inside the building. And even in his stoned, drunken, filthy state, there was just something that drew him in to the building. And he said in his testimony, you know, there was a part of me that said, you know, I, I can't go in there. I, I can't go in there like I am right now. And then he just thought to himself, but I'm gonna. And he did. And he went in and he sat down up in the balcony as far back as he could get. And he listened to the worship. He listened to people praying and crying out around him. He, he listened to the message of salvation that was given that day. And all he knew was that he needed 
what they were talking about. In the meantime, Pastor Cimbala was down front and uh, they just wrapped up praying for people and he was just greeting people. You know, it was an Easter Sunday, you know, and it was, I believe it was their last service of the day. And he said, all of a sudden, I smelled something. And it was just the worst smell of, of human filth and, 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 and urine and, and sweat and everything you could possibly imagine. And I turned around and here comes this clearly homeless man walking towards me. And he said, all I could think was, oh man, what a day or what a way to end an Easter Sunday. Such great services and all these things and here comes this guy who's gonna hit me up for money. And he said, I was almost physically starting to reach for my wallet when I started to talk to this man. I even think he said something about having to breathe through his mouth because the smell was just so bad. And as he was talking to him, inadvertently something came up about money and the guy said, no, 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 pastor, you don't understand. I don't want your money. I want this Jesus that you're talking about. And Pastor Cimbala said, the instant those words came out of his mouth, he said it just broke him. Because he said, here I am on the very day that we're declaring the resurrection of Christ, speaking a message of salvation, and I didn't see this man for what he actually was. And he said, the Holy Spirit just broke me. He said, but at the same time, renewed me right in that moment. And he said, I reached out and put my arms around David, and he just began to weep. And he said, all of a sudden, that smell that had been so repulsive, that had been so just the picture of degradation and filth and disgust. He said it suddenly became the sweetest aroma I had ever smelled in my life as David collapsed into my arms and met Jesus. And he went on to talk about the fact that he was now a true man of God who had been living for years sober and clean and was on staff at the church um, in, in, in security and, and, and maintenance around and uh, and just talked about how that completely changed the way that he viewed his whole ministry. It was revolutionary for him. And obviously, it was revolutionary for David as well. Based on what Pastor Jim was seeing, the things he had experienced in the past, he was probably calling it right. Just a bum, looking for money, But when he listened, when he heard what the man had to say, something shifted. If we're truly following Jesus in the midst of our preconceptions, in the midst of our biases, in the midst of our own brokenness, we'll actually hear what he hears. And then finally, a follower will do what he says. And I'm sorry for those of you who are disappointed that I didn't just say we'll do what he did. Followers of Jesus know him. They recognize his voice. They listen to him and sense what he is prompting them to do and they do what he says. John 10, 27, my sheep recognize my voice. I know them and they follow me. 
And there are a lot of stories I could tell to illustrate this, but Jesus did the perfect one, so that's the one I'm gonna tell. Luke 10, 30 through 35. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed by the other side and passed him by. A temple assistant, a Levite, walked over and looked at him lying there, got even closer, but he also passed by on the other side. But then, a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Jesus calls us to compassion that leads to action. It's not enough to see. It's not enough to hear. In every single one of these situations, after he had seen, after he had heard, he did something about it. And maybe some of you are thinking, well, I'm not Jesus. That's fair. You're not. But you do have the same spirit living inside of you. And if your ears are attuned to what he is speaking, he will tell you what to do, and then your job is to do it. Isn't it great? You don't even have to think. A follower will do what he says. He will show compassion. He will do something with what he sees and what he hears. This is exactly how Jesus lived and loved his entire life. This is exactly how Jesus laid down his life. Proverbs 3, 27. Whenever you possibly can, do good to those who need it. There's a quote from John Wesley, which I love, and it's a bit old world, but it's okay. Do all the good you can by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, for as long as ever you can. Jesus didn't just tell us to do this. He did these kinds of things himself. We saw it in these, in these healings. We saw it in these encounters with people. We hear it in this story of the Good Samaritan, but we also see it in the feeding of the 5,000. The people were hungry, and so he fed them. When children were brought, brought to him and the disciples were trying to scatter them away, he rebuked his disciples. He told them, you're missing the point of all of this. Let them come to me. when his disciples knew how far above him or how far above them 
he was. When they saw him as the Messiah, when they saw him as the victor, when they saw him as all of these things that he was going to come in and he was going to he was going to set up the kingdom of God, Jesus washed their feet. Because all they were thinking about was power and he wanted to demonstrate humility. He knew what they needed. And so he gave that to them instead. We got a lot of present examples right now too. You know, there's needs all over to reach out to girls and women with un unplanned pregnancies. We're doing that through the Embrace Grace ministry right now, but are you paying attention? There's a need to provide solid foster homes for kids who otherwise might never have an opportunity to meet Jesus or even know what a loving family looks like. There's a need to adopt kids into Christian homes. There's a need to be willing to help a family with budgeting, to come alongside those that are struggling in their marriage or with parenting. There's needs for pray now moments all over the place. When you know who you are, you'll know what to do and you'll do it. You're a follower of Jesus, so do what he did and do what the Spirit says. That's all well and good, and now I'm gonna grind on your toes a little bit. When we say yes to Jesus, the resurrected Christ, our life does not belong to us anymore. It belongs to him. If you are his follower, then you go where he goes because you're doing life with him. If you are a child of God, if you are a follower of Jesus, you will live like it. If we're truly going to represent him, we must love as he loved. And of all the things I've talked about so far, this is the most difficult. This means laying down our rights to be offended, laying down our rights to be hurt, and especially laying down our right to hold a grudge when we have been legitimately wronged. If I go back to the story of the Good Samaritan, there's a lot more nuance to what was going on there than simply a guy helping another guy. See, the, the thing that started that whole story, the context of that story was this. Luke 10, 25. One day, an expert in the religious law stood up to test Jesus and asked him this question. Teacher, can you just hear the sarcasm in that teacher? Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? And the man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him. Do this and you will live. Now look at this. The man wanting to justify himself asked Jesus this question. And who is my neighbor? And then Jesus goes into the parable about the Good Samaritan. And at the very end, he asks the guy, so, which one of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? 
And the man replied, and I like to think he replied sheepishly, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus said, yes. Now, go and do the same. A lot of people don't really understand the animosity that existed between Samaritans and Jews. See, the Samaritans were people who had been brought in by the Assyrians when they had destroyed Israel. The Samaritans were foreigners because that's what the the Assyrians would do. They would would displace the people that belonged in a place, put a new group of people there, and then they would take this group of people and move them over here. They just played kind of a shell game with all the lands they conquered in order to destroy their identity, destroy their nationality, take away their heritage. Because of this, they had different ideas about God. They worshiped in places other than the temple. And the Jews viewed them as somewhere between heretics and racially impure. Because they had intermarried with some of the Jews that were left. The Samaritan knew this. He had lived his whole life being rejected and belittled by Jewish people. And quite honestly, I'm sure he understood that had the roles been reversed, and we kind of see it in this story, had that Jewish man found the Samaritan laying there, he very likely would have just left him there, left him to die, knowing full well what this man thought of him. The Samaritan had compassion, and he reached down and helped him anyway. He extended love and grace where it had not been earned, and it absolutely was not deserved. And the way that the Samaritans were looked at by the Jews is much the way the Jews were looked at by the Romans. Everything that was going on in that era was all about national freedom. The the, the Jews wanted to have their identity back. They wanted to retake power from Rome. They wanted to be their own kingdom again. And to Rome, Israel, Judah, was just a backwoods assignment that no soldier wanted, that no government official wanted. They were despised. And so Jesus took this man, this teacher of the religious law, and said, you do the same thing that this Samaritan did. You look at the one who is your oppressor. You look at the one who has set himself against you and show him compassion. Jesus did it himself. Father, forgive them. They don't know. They don't understand. It didn't change the pain he was going through. It didn't didn't change what was physically happening to him. But he knew. He saw them as God saw them. He heard as God heard. Jesus is calling us to love those who do not love us in the same way to care for those who hate and would hurt us if they had the chance, yet we often do the opposite and feel justified in doing it because of our hurt. So let me ask this. If we've been extended the limitless grace and mercy and love of God, 
even when we were his enemies, then shouldn't we do the same for others? Now let me clarify something here. I'm not talking about keeping yourself in or staying in a situation that might be dangerous for you, that you should just suck it up and you know be like Jesus. No, 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 no. Please don't hear that. What I'm ultimately talking about here, though, is what is the idol in your life? And that may seem like a strange turn, but give me a second. If you are a follower, if you are a Christian, and there's anything, any label, any identifier before that word, you have an idol. If the fact that you're a Republican comes first, before the word Christian, you have an idol. If the fact that you're a Democrat comes first, before that word Christian, you have an idol. If your sexual identity comes before that word, your sexual needs come before that word, you have an idol. If your ethnicity or your culture comes before that word, you have an idol. We're not called to be Christians. We're called to be Christians, to be followers, to be fully devoted. I recently heard Andy Stanley offer this challenge when talking about all the political and social turmoil, particularly in America, all the divisions that seem to be, he said this, let's be Christians. Let's live and love like Christians. And it's not easy. I'm not telling you this because, oh, this is simple and if you would just get it. No, but we're sourced by him. It's not us. All of our hurt, all of our pain, all of the righteous reasons that we should be angry, that we should be bitter, that we have a right to lash out to somebody, he heals them all. The cross was enough or it was not. And we will live like the cross was enough. Or we won't. They will know we are Christians by our, behold how they love one another. And sometimes it hurts. I have been in a room where I have to look at somebody who I know hates me and I have to choose to love them. It's not easy, but thank God we don't have to do it on our own. He is our source. He is the one who fills us. He is the one who sustains us. He is the one who gives us the life and the love to give away. Jesus prompts his followers. They know who they are. They know what to do, and they do what he says. When you know who he is, you'll see what he sees. You'll hear what he hears, and you will actually do what he says. And I want to wrap the whole thing with this. Matthew 5, 43 through 48. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor, your fellow man, and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love, that is unselfishly seek the best or higher good for your enemies 
and pray for those who persecute you so that you may show yourselves to be the children of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on those who are evil and on those who are good. He makes the rain fall on the righteous, those who are morally upright, and the unrighteous, the unrepentant, those who oppose him. Listen to this. For if you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do that? And if you greet only your brothers, wishing them God's blessing and peace, what more than others are you doing? Do not even the Gentiles who do not know the Lord do that? You, therefore, will be perfect, growing into spiritual maturity both in mind and character actively integrating godly values into your daily life as your heavenly Father is perfect. So my challenge to you at the end of all this, this positive ID, is this. Church, people, let's be Christians. Let's live and let's love and respond as if we're actually following the man, Jesus. Everybody go ahead and stand. Jesus, we belong to you. If we have said yes to you, we belong to you. I pray that today, those who have heard this message who don't know you would want to know you. I pray that those that have heard this message who have lost their passion and their edge would come to find you and discover you fresh. I pray that those who hear this message who are weary and tired would come to be renewed today. Holy Spirit, we will see what you see. We will hear what you hear. And we will do what you say. I pray for each one in this room that you will give them unique opportunities to do just that. That you will remind them of what you did, of how you lived, Jesus. And that they would respond and react and walk as you walk. May we be followers of Christ. Not just churchgoers. Not just part of a voting demographic. May we be followers of Jesus.